0: Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Zanny Minton beddoes The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Coming up, you'll hear some of the highlights from the latest edition of The Economist.
1: These are just a sample of our unrivalled global analysis, unpicking the stories behind the headlines. Here's one of my colleagues to tell you what's in store this week. Thanks, Zanny. It's June the 28th, 2019. I'm Josie Delapp. We have two covers this week. In Britain, we report on the city of London. It generates a quarter of its income from the continent, but Brexit threatens to rupture Britain's financial link to Europe. You can hear more about this story in the upcoming edition of our Money Talks podcast. Our cover story elsewhere asks how the world should contain Iran. It is poised to breach the nuclear deal it signed with America and other powers. President Trump's strategy is making war more likely. Next, the idea of reparations for slavery is morally appealing, but difficult to implement. Democrats should drop it. And finally, the European Parliament has voted to prohibit terms such as burger and steak to describe products that don't contain meat. There are plenty more misleading words it should ban. First up, new talks are needed between America and Iran.
2: For nearly four years, Iran's path to a nuclear weapon was blocked. The deal it signed with America and other powers in 2015 limited its nuclear program to civilian uses, such as power generation, and subjected them to the toughest inspection regime in history. The experts agreed that Iran was complying and that its nuclear activities were contained. But then President Donald Trump ditched the nuclear deal and Iran resumed stockpiling low-enriched uranium. It is now poised to breach the 300 kilogram cap set by the agreement. Iran may hesitate before crossing that line, but it is also threatening to increase the enrichment level of its uranium, bringing it closer to the stuff that goes into a bomb. Fortunately, Iran is not about to become a nuclear weapons power. Its breakout time is over a year but it is once again using its nuclear program to heap pressure on America. That adds an explosive new element to an already volatile mix. America accuses Iran of attacking six ships in the Strait of Hormuz since May. On June twentieth, Iran shot down an American spy drone. America insisted the aircraft was above international waters, not Iran's, and sent warplanes to strike back. Ten minutes before they were due to hit targets inside Iran, Mr Trump called them off and contented himself with a cyber-attack instead. Neither Mr Trump nor America's allies nor Iran wants a big new war in the Middle East. Yet Mr Trump's strategy of applying maximum pressure on Iran is making the prospect more likely because each side, issuing ever wilder threats, could end up misreading the other's red lines. The President's room for manoeuvre is shrinking. As Iran turns more belligerent, calls for action will grow, not least from his own party. Before things escalate out of control, both sides need to begin talking. That is not as unlikely as it sounds. Mr Trump's Iran strategy is based on the premise that Barack Obama gave too much away too easily when he negotiated the deal in 2015. Last year, the president set out to get better terms by reneging on the agreement and reimposing the sanctions that have crippled Iran's economy. This, his advisers argue, will force a weakened Iran to accept a new deal that lasts longer than the old one, most of which expires by 2030. They also want curbs on Iran's missile program and an end to its violent meddling in the region. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, sees recent Iranian aggression as a sign that the strategy is working. Hard-hitting sanctions brought Iran to the negotiating table in 2015, but they are unlikely to lead to the transformation Mr Trump wants. One reason is that he has discredited Hassan Rouhani, Iran's president and a champion of the nuclear deal. Hardliners are now calling the shots. Another is that America is acting alone. In 2015, in a rare moment of international unity, it had the support of its European allies as well as Russia and China. Maximum pressure comes with extra risks to boot. The mullahs and their Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps want to prove their mettle by showing that Mr. Trump's actions have costs for everyone. On top of the attacks on ships and drones, Iranian proxies have hit pipelines in Saudi Arabia and are suspected of having struck Iraqi bases hosting American troops. If sanctions are not lifted, Iranian officials may resort to closing the Strait of Hormuz, through which one-fifth of the world's oil passes. Hawks, like John Bolton, Mr Trump's national security adviser, retort that if Iran wants war, That is what it will get, especially if it shows signs of dashing for a nuclear bomb, which could trigger disastrous proliferation in the Middle East. But this is the riskiest calculation of all. Having pulled out of a working deal, America may not win the backing of European allies for strikes. China and Russia would vehemently oppose any action at all. Perhaps sanctions or war will cause the regime to crumble, but that is hardly a strategy. Cuba has resisted sanctions for decades. More probably, a defeated Iran would heed the lesson of nuclear-armed North Korea and redouble its efforts to get a bomb. Attacking Iran's nuclear facilities would not destroy its know-how, as even Mr Bolton admits. If, as is likely, Iran barred international inspectors, its program would move underground, literally and figuratively, making it very hard to stop. The alternative to today's course is talks between America and Iran. Just now, that looks far-fetched. Iran's foreign ministry says American sanctions imposed on Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, and other top officials this week, mark the permanent closure of the path of diplomacy. Mr Rouhani has suggested that the White House is mentally handicapped, after which Mr Trump threatened obliteration. But optimists will remember similar clashes between America's President and Kim Jong-un, North Korea's despot, before they met in Singapore and fell in love, as Mr Trump put it. When he is not threatening to annihilate the Mullahs, Mr Trump is offering to talk without preconditions and to make Iran great again. He does not want the prospect of war in the Middle East looming over his re-election campaign. Likewise, in Iran, the economy is shrinking, prices are rising, and people are becoming fed up. Pressure is growing on Mr Khamenei to justify his intransigence. Love could yet bloom. America might coax Iran back to the table with a gesture of good faith, such as reinstating waivers that let some countries buy Iranian oil. Iran in turn could promise to comply with the nuclear deal again. Behind the scenes, its leaders have expressed a willingness to sign something like the old agreement with additions, such as extending parts of the deal beyond 2030. Negotiations would never be easy, the Iranians are infuriating to deal with, but that would let the President claim victory, as he did with the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, which his administration signed last year and which looks a lot like its predecessor, the North American Free Trade Agreement. What of a deal that also curbs Iran's missile programme and restrains it in the region? As Mr Trump seems to realise, biting everything off in one go is unrealistic. A new deal cannot solve all the problems posed by Iran or normalise ties with America after decades of enmity. It may not even lift all America's sanctions. Neither did the first agreement, but if done right, a deal would put Iran's nuclear programme back in a box, making it easier to tackle all those other problems without causing a war.
1: Brought
0: to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home addition, maybe even an addition on that addition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. (music)
1: Next, well-intentioned reparations may do more harm than good. Mitch McConnell is not known for his views on racial justice. But when
0: asked last week whether he thought African-Americans should receive restitution for slavery and the decades of lawful discrimination that followed it, the Republican Senate leader's response was sound. He was against the idea, he said, in part for practical reasons – For how would the recipients of compensation be selected? He also objected in principle, if African-Americans received reparations, what about the other victims of discrimination, including America's many waves of immigrants? Continued incremental improvements in the lives of black Americans seemed a more credible response to our original sin, said Mr McConnell. We've elected an African-American president, I think we're always a work in progress in this country. Democrats who were about to hold the first congressional hearing on slavery reparations in over a decade hit the roof. Senator Cory Booker, one of at least seven candidates in the Democratic primary to have given their support for a bill to launch a congressional probe into the issue, slammed Mr McConnell's ignorance. Another candidate, Marianne Williamson, a self-help guru who has proposed making reparations to African-Americans of up to half a trillion dollars, questioned his gradualist view of racial progress. You can't have the future that you want until you're willing to clean up your past. Yet Mr McConnell's view of the matter was similar to that of the first black president he referred to. Barack Obama considered the idea of reparations to be politically fantastical because a majority of Americans would never agree to it, and otherwise flawed. That was not to downplay the terrible legacy of slavery and Jim Crow among black Americans, including persistent white-black wealth, income and education gaps. But as a policy prescription, Mr Obama told the writer Tanahisi Coates, whose twenty fourteen essay in favour of reparations published in the Atlantic had revived the issue, it was a distraction. Why are we even having the abstract conversation when we've got a big fight on our hands just to get strong, universal anti-poverty programmes and social programmes in place and we're still fighting to make sure that basic anti-discrimination laws are enforced? This also represented a belief in the hard slog of incremental improvement ingrained in Mr Obama by his study of history as well as by the political moment. The New Deal and Civil Rights era were rare explosions of liberal progress in special circumstances which his election alone did not augur. That many Democrats are nonetheless now embracing the reparations distraction shows how much the party has changed since Mr. Obama last secured the White House in 2012. That should worry anyone who hopes it will repeat the feat against President Donald Trump next year the right's racially charged opposition to Mr Obama has helped encourage the shift. Blowhards such as Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck characterised his spending proposals as reparations. Congressional Republicans, led by Mr McConnell, obstructed him to an unprecedented degree. Left-wing critics of Mr Obama, including black activists, dismayed by his pragmatism, had previously warned that his attempts to meet Republicans in the centre ground would cause them to shift it to the right. The fact that this happened when Mr Obama adopted a Republican healthcare plan – Republicans call it socialism – is a reason many now cite for demanding a bolder agenda. Yet the idea that Mr Obama would have been more successful if he had tried to do the left-wing things his critics falsely accused him of defies reason. In the case of reparations, this would mean Democrats propounding an idea even more unpopular than Mr Trump's policy of tearing migrant children from their parents. Over 80% of whites oppose it. Republicans are liable to dismiss any democratic racial justice scheme as identity politics. In this case, they would be right. Mr. Coates, who appeared alongside Mr. Booker at the recent Congressional hearing, argues that black Americans' legacy of injustice is incomparably worse than that of any other group. Yet Native Americans, a smaller and less democratic group, would beg to differ. And though some Democrats propose giving them reparations too, last week California's Governor Gavin Newsom announced the launch of a commission to study the issue and Elizabeth Warren has said she might support it, that is less a solution than a warning against embarking on the endeavour at all. It would be liable to keep spreading, maybe to poor Hispanics next. That such a clearly impractical and politically no-win scheme made it through the democratic policy machine might seem amazing, but it did not. It flew more or less straight from Mr Coates's pen to Congress and the presidential primary, where Ms Williamson added noughts to it. No think tank or policy unit appears to have given real thought to slavery reparations. Its sudden prominence reflects a lack of rigour, characteristic of the party's activist fringe. The Green New Deal and Medicare for All, two other fashionable ideas on the left, received similarly scant consideration before being pushed by activists into the mainstream. In their defence, Democratic candidates have mostly made far more measured commitments to all three ideas than the activists would like. Asked for his reparations policy, Mr Booker points to his proposal to fight wealth inequality by giving cash in the form of baby bonds to poor families. That is the sort of colour-blind anti-poverty measure which would have benefited African Americans disproportionately, and which Mr Obama would have approved of. Mr Booker should describe it as such... By flirting with reparations, the Democrats have already provided Mr Trump with racially incendiary attack lines. And to what end? The issue is not even all that popular with African Americans, only a small majority of whom support it. They tend to be as pragmatic as Mr Obama was, and so must
1: know that it is a pipe dream. And finally, silly sausages. Europe defends itself against veggie burgers.
2: The European Union gets a lot of flack. All right, it isn't literally blasted with anti-aircraft fire, but you know what we mean. One ongoing battle, okay, nobody died, involves the use of words. Earlier this year, the European Parliament's Agriculture Committee voted to prohibit the terms burger, sausage, escalope and steak to describe products that do not contain any meat. It was inspired by the European Court of Justice's decision in 2017 to ban the use of milk, butter and cream for non-dairy products. Exceptions were made for ice cream and almond milk, but soya milk went down the drain, lest consumers assume it had been extracted from the soya udder of a soya cow. The court has yet to rule on the milk of human kindness. Greens are mounting a campaign against the committee's decision which they suspect is supported not only by linguistic purists but also by the meat industry. This newspaper thinks the Parliament is quite right to protect citizens from the confusion they would no doubt feel were they to find that no part of a veggie burger was made of the flesh of a dead animal. Indeed this praiseworthy initiative needs to go further. Escalops pose a clear danger to consumers who might well recoil in horror when, taking a mouthful of one, they discover that it is made not of the scallops from which it got its name, but of chicken or veal. Sausages should refer only to heavily salted meat, whence the term derives. For clarity, consumers should be informed that the item is encased in animal intestine. Steaks should be sold only on a pointed stick, on the grounds that most shoppers will rely on the Proto-Indo-European etymology. Any confusion could be avoided if kebabs were, as their Arabic root suggests, always sold burned. The production of burgers should be restricted to the butchers of Hamburg, long ago deprived of their intellectual property by a shocking failure of linguistic regulation. The same rights should be extended to the makers of Frankfurter sausages, sorry, meat-filled gut, and... Meat itself should apply to all food, sweet or savoury, which would make the term historically accurate, if useless. Nor should the Parliament's reforming zeal be restricted to food. Any reference to the European budget should be confined to the money that the Commissioner for Economic and Monetary Affairs, Valdis Dombrovskis, keeps on his person in a bougette or leather purse. Only those banks which carry out their business on wooden benches, banco in Italian, should be included in the banking union. Discussion of computers should be limited to clerks who do budgetary calculations, while that of the digital single market should apply only to sums that people can do on their fingers. This linguistic rigour should be extended through both time and space. The Holy Roman Empire, as Voltaire pointed out, was neither holy nor Roman, nor an empire. La Manche has no sartorial connections, the Mediterranean is not the centre of the earth, there is no horticulture in the Big Apple. They need renaming. Not all the Union's governing structures are taking their linguistic responsibilities seriously enough. When earlier this year Donald Tusk, President of the European Council, spoke of concrete measures to extend the single market, and a level playing field, listeners might reasonably have looked forward to a multi-billion euro infrastructure project to shift French and Italian mountaintops to the low-lying bits around Brussels. The Treaty of Rome speaks of the need to respect member states' culture, know nothing to do with yoghurt, and bind them together, please put the string away. In view of those aspirations, Europe's leaders need to get on board with this reform. Not literally, obviously. It's not a ship. Never mind.
1: That's just a sample of the stories on offer in the paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do. So please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's economist.com slash radio offer. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Z. In London, this is The Economist. Mom, delivery!
2: You've been loading up on things from Walmart?
1: Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5%, 5% back! back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart Online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet?
2: Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One
0: USANA.